0: Dr. David Steensma reviewed with me papers from ASH relating to MDS and AML. And to begin, he commented on a trial addressing the critical factor of maintenance therapy after induction chemo in patients with MDS and post-MDS AML who were not eligible
1: for transplant. This was a study addressing the common problem in MDS and in post-MDS AML. That is, that even if you use induction-type chemotherapy to get a patient in remission, they don't stay there. The relapse rate is very high. And now that the hypomethylating agents, azacitidine and decitabine are available, people have been thinking, well, maybe it's something that we could use as a maintenance program to help keep the patients in remission. So this was a Nordic study. They looked at 60 patients who either had high-risk MDS or post-myelodysplasia AML. They were ineligible for transplant. They got a standard leukemia-like induction regimen. And then there wasn't a control arm, but the patients who got a CR were then maintained with a low-dose azacitidine regimen. Five days a month every 28 days. They had to lower the dose a couple times because they got so much cytopenias with the first dose they tried. Now, it's hard to say, you know, what the meaning of the results are without a control arm. But I think it's slightly sobering that most of the patients relapsed and the median CR duration was only 13 and a half months. And that's within the realm of what one might expect with just induction alone in this group. Perhaps slightly longer, but it's difficult to say. The one thing that they did look at were three different genes. They looked at hypermethylation status, and one of them, E-cadherin, the patients who were hypermethylated did very poor, had a survival of only three months compared to those in whom that wasn't hypermethylated at baseline. But there wasn't any consistency between methylation and durability of response or changes in methylation and outcomes, so it's a little bit sobering. I think this is an avenue that people are still thinking about, you know, how can we maintain these remissions, but I was underwhelmed by this. So I take it then that it would not be something that would be done outside of protocol? I think that that's fair to say, yes. This is also being looked at post-transplant, and, you know, we don't have good data on that, but it's being looked at to try to maintain remissions after somebody's gone through a stem cell transplant, and who knows what the results there will be.
0: Do you think that maybe they could have seen something different with a different dose or different schedule?
1: It's possible, perhaps if they had used a longer schedule or a a once-a-week schedule to change the pharmacokinetics and the biological effects. That's something that people are looking at in primary treatment is altering schedule and dose rather than as a maintenance therapy. But we just don't know yet what the optimal dose and schedule are. And this was a tolerable one once they got the dose level down a couple notches because of the cytopenias.
0: How about the paper by Weegeer Hams? Looking at low-dose decitabine versus supportive care in elderly patients.
1: Oh, right. Yeah, so Pierre Weirman's, this is actually a very important study and perhaps the most important one that we're talking about today with respect to MDS because the big news at the ASH annual meeting last year was the ASA one study comparing azacitidine versus conventional care, which was mostly supportive care. It's the first thing that's been shown to improve survival in intermediate to and high risk MDS patients, so that was exciting, and it really there were a couple derivative studies both at ASCO and then at the ASH meeting this year with follow up analyses and that sort of thing. And we're going to talk about one of those in a minute. The question is, decitabine, which was approved about two years ago for MDS by the FDA, has a mechanism of action that's very similar to azacitidine, and so the question was, does it too? improve survival. This is a slightly older study that started accruing patients in 2002, and so it used a decitabine regimen that is actually quite uncommonly used today. It used a 3-day inpatient regimen of decitabine rather than a 5-day outpatient regimen, which is overwhelmingly the most common regimen used by hematologists oncologists in the US today. So, this study compared Cytabine to best supportive care in patients who were older and who had intermediate or high risk MDS. They either had to have 11 to 30 percent blasts, using the older definition when 21 to 30 percent blasts counted as MDS rather than AML like it does now, or poor risk cytogenetics. 233 patients were randomized, and unfortunately, there was no difference in overall survival between the d and the best supportive care. There's two possibilities for why that might be. Number one is that d could be different from azacitidine. It could be an inferior drug in terms of survival endpoints. Professor Weiermans and some others have stated, however, that they think it's more likely to be the study design. Unlike the azacitidine survival study, where patients were treated basically until they progressed or couldn't tolerate the drug anymore, here there was a maximum of eight cycles of drug, and the median cycles that patients actually got was only four. And compare that to a median of nine cycles in the azacitidine study. And it also may have used a regimen that was inferior. The the CR rate, 13% here, is a lot closer to the registration study, which had a lower response rate than either of the studies out there with the five-day regimen. So what do you see as the current non-protocol role right now for dicitobine in MDS? I think that's something that we're all wrestling with. This is probably one of the most common discussions I have with patients when I see them for a consultation and they have higher-risk MDS. I say, here we've got this azacitidine survival data. It's out there. It's been shown to improve survival. That's got to be the standard of care. d however, has a few things about it that are attractive. The five-day regimen doesn't use weekends. The seven-day azacitidine regimen, the package insert regimen does. The studies with D-citabine have suggested that perhaps it works a little bit quicker, that the median cycles to response is somewhere between 2 and Three rather than four or more with azacitidine. So there are trade offs, and I talk about it with patients. And I would say at this point about half are choosing azacitidine and half decitabine. So there's not a clear winner here yet. But this is very important data for that discussion.
0: We see in so many clinical trials and oncology disparities between progression free survival and overall survival. And in this study, they actually saw progression free survival
1: delay. Am I correct? That's correct. And that had also been seen in the original registration trial, but not an overall survival. A lot of the patients in the original study, both with azacitidine and the registration study for decetamine, crossed over. When they progressed, if they had supportive care. And in this study, there were, I think it was 21% of the patients, subsequently went on to get either induction or transplant or some sort of therapy. So, could that have changed the overall survival where you didn't see an effect but you did with progression free survival? That may have been. I think there's an open question. And importantly, there's now something I didn't think was ever going to happen, and that is a direct comparative trial between desotobine and azacitidine. So we'll see how they stack up against each other in terms of a CR rate. That's going to be interesting. As long as you mentioned
0: that study question, which is interesting, I'm not sure, you know, revolutionary, but what other yeah. strategies are being looked at right now in terms of phase three trials in MDS that maybe could impact care in the community in the next couple of years? Yeah, I
1: think an important one is whether adding Something else to a backbone of azacitidine improves outcomes, either by making responders of people who weren't responders, or by improving the quality of response in people who have only a partial or a temporary response. So to me, one of the most interesting ongoing studies is an ECOG cooperative group study, E1905, in which 176 patients are being treated. Half of them are getting azacitidine alone in a 10-day schedule. Half are getting azacitidine plus a histone deacetylase inhibitor. There's in vitro synergy. So that study has been accruing well. And I'm hopeful that it'll finish accrual within the next year or so. Are you putting patients yourself on that study? Yes. We interviewed Stephen
0: Gore. I believe he's the PI on that. He's the overall PI. Right, Mm -hmm. for that study. And one of the things that I was curious about is how it's playing out just in terms of side effects and
1: toxicity compared to just azacitidine alone. Yeah. The things we're seeing seem to be quite similar to what is seen with azacitidine alone. One of the big concerns about histone deacetylase inhibitors has been excessive fatigue and just stay in bed all day kind of fatigue. And thus far, I mean, it's a relatively small number of patients that we've treated. We haven't had that, but the HDAC inhibitors being given in a little bit more limited amounts in that study.
0: Let's talk about the paper by Silverman, looking at the effects of continuing azacitidine in patients with higher-risk MDS.
1: Right. So this study was a follow-up analysis of the az one study that I just mentioned, the survival study that was presented by Professor Pierre Finot at ASH last year. And this gets to the heart, I think, of this issue of how many cycles is enough. And Dr. Silverman is a big advocate of continuing to treat patients until the drug either becomes intolerable or they obviously are progressing. And so what he and his colleagues looked at in this study, study, study was what was the median time to first response with azacitidine, but then how many patients subsequently had a better response? And they found that the first response was not the best response in 48% of the patients. And so I think that it's an open question which patients actually benefit from treating until progression. Is stable disease good enough? So- What they were looking at was specifically the 179 patients who were randomized to azacitidine. And so one of the things they looked at was how long did that take? And I mentioned that with d-cidabine, there had been a question based on some of the trials with the five-day regimen that perhaps it might work a little quicker. Here they saw that the median number of cycles to get first response was three cycles, and that there were a few patients who didn't have a first response until more than 10 cycles had passed. 81% 81% of the patients had achieved their first response by six cycles. Compare that to 82% with decitabine in the multicenter study by three cycles. So again, that's one difference there. And almost all of the patients had achieved a first response by nine cycles. And then the 48% of patients for whom the first response was not the best response, they started out with just a heme improvement and maybe later got a full partial remission or a full CR, it took a median of additional four cycles to get to that best response. What happens in your own practice
0: and what fraction of patients actually are continued until disease progression?
1: Because we have some clinical trials open, And because I'm not entirely convinced that a patient with stable disease is really being benefited from these drugs... I will stop a patient after, you know, six to eight cycles if they've not had a decent response to this and do something else. I think it's a different situation if the patient's not willing to travel and you're treating them in a setting where you don't have access to another clinical trial or different drugs. In that case, I can see that there might be a rationale. But to be honest, there are very few settings I can think of in oncology where we continue to treat people who are not clearly responding in Definitely. Another study that I think we're going to talk about in a little bit suggested that the toxicity is fairly mild after those first few cycles. So you could say, well, the patients are not obviously being harmed by it, but they do get tired of it. So another person in my travels in hematologic oncology that
0: I spoke with is Dr. Kantarjian from MD right? Anderson. And he had an
1: interesting paper on a new prognostic model for M- yes. MDS. What do you think about that? Well, I think this is really a symptom of what's going on in myelodysplasia. People are unsatisfied now with the IPSS. It's 11 plus years old. There have been numerous papers showing that there are issues with it. It takes into account number of cytopenias but not their severity. It has a limited number of cytogenetic abnormalities included in it. It overemphasizes blasts compared to karyotypes. So there's some issues with the IPSS. And most damningly, it was only designed for patients with de novo MDS who had not been previously treated. Well, the folks at MD Anderson, like us, said that's not the patients who we're seeing. We're seeing patients who have been previously diagnosed. Maybe they've had a few treatments. And now they're seeing us. So we need a better prognostic tool for them. And so what Hagup and his colleagues did was they looked at 1,915 patients with MDS who've been referred to MD Anderson over a 12-year period. Only 26% of them were de novo untreated disease where the IPSS was applicable. So it's a big group of people that the IPSS wasn't validated for. And what they did was look at severity of cytopenias, performance score, age, all the things you might expect have prognostic value and plugged it into a multivariate model and saw what came out in terms of being independently predictive of prognosis. They divided those 1,915 patients into a study group and a test group. And this system is much more complex than the IPSS. It certainly, I think, reflects the reality of the practice that I see. For instance, one change is you get different points, prognostic points for platelets if your platelet count's less than 30 versus 30 to 49 versus 50 to 199. The patients who have a platelet count less than 30 do really quite poorly. And so rather than just saying, well, the patient's thrombocytopenic, they get a point for that, this helps tease that out a little bit better. They separated patients into four risk groups, just like the IPSS, low, intermediate one, intermediate two, and high And the high-risk patients did really, really bad. Less than 1% were alive six years later and only 3% alive at three years. The lower-risk group, in contrast, more than half of them were alive at three years. And so this, I think, is a scoring system that, despite its complexity, is going to be temporarily useful. Why I say temporarily is that between this and the World Health Organization prognostic scoring system and other scoring systems that people are proposing, there's a movement afoot now to update the IPSS, to get everybody together, 10,000 patients, try to tease out, come up with a real good prognostic scoring system. That'll get us the next decade until the molecular markers really become part of clinical practice. Now, this new model, is this something that you yourself are using
0: or would like to use or maybe sort of just the intuitive factors in it are coming more into your head? How
1: does it affect your practice? Yes. The MD Anderson team had come up with one Prognostic scoring system that I already do use just before this. Guillermo Garcia Manero, a bright young faculty member down there, designed a prognostic scoring system for low risk MDS patients to tease out who's really, really low risk and who looks like low risk but is actually going to progress and might need treatment. I use that on a regular basis. This one is a little bit more complicated. We're in the process right now of trying to validate it with our own patients. And I think if we can show independently and confirm it, or one of the other big groups, Cleveland Clinic or something, can do the same, then I think I'm going to use this. For now, I'll take these things into account, but so many of the studies depend on what's your IPSS score that we can't get away from it. (laughs) Is this really mainly an issue for trials or also in terms of non-protocol patient care? It's an issue in both settings. I have certainly had patients And I'll tell you one story here about a patient who looked like they were low-risk disease but whom I was very concerned about. Saw a young patient not long ago in his 30s. He'd gotten into some chemicals in a workplace and developed a myelodysplastic syndrome. He was mildly cytopenic, so he didn't get excess points for that. His karyotype, a 321 translocation, was not included in the IPSS, and he didn't have excess blasts. So it looked like he was 0.5 in intermediate one, and he should have done all right for a while. But what we know about that 321 translocation is that that's a terrible, terrible marker and that that's a patient that's likely to progress and die within a year. It's usually treatment or exposure related. And so that's somebody I referred to transplantation despite a quote-unquote lower risk IPSS score. And it works the other way around 2. It's interesting just out of curiosity, when did he have
0: the chemical exposure and what kind of chemical?
1: It's not exactly clear what it was. He was working in a shop environment. He was doing some welding, there was some painting involved. It was like a machinery shop. He was working long hours. And so I can't help but think that something had to have been toxic for him because here's a previously healthy young guy that gets a karyotype that is almost Never seen outside of the treatment related setting. And there were plenty of hydrocarbons in there that he was using, solvents and such. The next
0: paper I want to ask you about is really near and dear to our heart as a CME group by Van Benekom, looking at patterns of treatment in patients right. with recently diagnosed MDS. Our group has done quite a few studies breast, lung, colon, prostate cancer, the more common tumors. But I would love to be able to try to figure out what's going on in practice. And I guess this is a little bit of data in
1: that area. Can you talk about what they looked at and what they found? Right. So it is a little bit of data. I think the concept is spot on. We don't fully understand what people in the community are actually doing when they're treating patients with myelodysplasia. And I've heard myelodysplasia described as a retail disease in that most oncologists have six to 10 of these patients and they have enough experience with it to feel comfortable with the different drugs, but not a very large experience so that it justifies perhaps getting their own studies up and going and so that they feel extremely comfortable with it. And so the patients are treated in a lot of different settings with physicians with a great variety of experience levels. The patients don't travel well. So we see very few of them proportionally at academic medical centers. So What's actually going on out there? And this patient registry at Sloan Project based in Boston is a national sort of observational registry study that's being conducted. This group looked at 290 patients who had been diagnosed with MDS within four months. And then they followed how they were treated, what kind of drugs they got, and that sort of thing, and compared that with IPSS score, et cetera. And this is pretty recent, it was 2006 through 2008. That's correct. That's an important point, Neil, actually, because by June 2006, when this study started, all three of the currently available drugs for MDS were available. So lenalidomide was approved December 2005, Decitabine was approved, I think, May 2006, and azacitidine in 2004. So all three were available then. So can you talk about what they saw? So they saw that 24% of the patients had gotten some sort of disease-modifying therapy, one of those three drugs or something like transplant or a combination therapy, and that it was mostly uh, high-risk disease, and that a much larger proportion, 58%, got supportive care, most commonly with erythropoies-stimulating agents. That actually parallels an Internet-based study that my colleagues and I did through the MDS Foundation where we saw that by far... The most commonly used drug in MDS is erythropoietin and darbepoetin, and that the numbers were very similar to what this team saw as far as what proportion of each drug was used. I think one interesting thing to highlight here is that despite the availability of X XJADE, only 1% of these patients got any kind of iron chelation. And I think that reflects partly our lack of data that iron chelation actually does any good for these patients. And I think we're going to maybe talk about that in a minute. And partly the fact that deferrosyrox, while it's good at lowering ferritin, it's expensive. It can cause renal injury or, in rare cases, hepatic failure. And so there's some caution, I think, that most physicians are using about employing iron chelators. They also had a little bit of data on lenalidomide that I thought was interesting in terms of 5Q. Right. My observation based on the patients that have been referred to me is that lenalidomide is being used widely outside the indication in patients without 5Q. And the number of patients here was relatively small, but of the patients who received lenalidomide, actually the majority of them had either intermediate 2 disease or non-5Q. So that that labeled indication lower intermediate risk disease with isolated or deletion of chromosome 5Q involving band 3-1, sorry, not necessarily isolated, but having the deletion, is a minority of the patients who are actually getting the drug. How do you yourself approach the issue of lenalidomide and MDS? You know, lenalidomide, I think there probably are groups out there that respond to it that we don't have a bead on yet. I think it is a reasonable thing to give to low-risk patients certainly with a normal karyotype and probably with other karyotypes as well. The experience has been much more discouraging in patients with excess blasts or with pancytopenia. I don't use it in those settings, usually because that's when we're turning to the azacitidines, the d of the world, or moving on to more intensive therapy.
0: The other paper I want to ask you about in terms of MDS is, again, a paper by Dr. Cartagian looking at the effect of ramaplastim in patients. right.
1: Can you talk about that? Yes. So this is a drug that was just approved by the FDA within the last two to three months. Rumposidma is a thrombopoetin agonist. It's not a recombinant thrombopoetin. It's a small molecule fusion protein, what they are calling a peptabody and it stimulates platelet production. It's been approved for chronic ITP. That was, I think, felt to be the safest and easiest group to get it into. The concern about using it in patients with diseases like myelodysplasia is that in animal models and in vitro, it stimulates blasts and excess thrombopotent can cause marrow fibrosis. And in fact, in Dr. Kantarjian's previous study looking at romiplostim as a single agent in MDS that was presented at ASH last year, there were several patients who had an increase in their blast count that was reversible upon discontinuing the drug, and there were a few patients that developed during the course of therapy an increase in the amount of reticulin fibrosis in the marrow. These safety concerns led I think the FDA to be very restrictive about romiplostim distribution. And so there's a special program that one has to sign up for. The pharmacy at an institution has to become involved. So it's not something that we can just prescribe to whoever has a low platelet count. That being said, the previous study showed that it was actually quite well tolerated from the symptom standpoint and that it did a pretty good job at raising the platelet count. In many patients, the platelet count increased by 50 or more. Patients were becoming platelet transfusion independent, and it was durable lasting for more than six months in many cases. So that was exciting. This study combined it with azacitidine, and that was done for two reasons. Number one is that when you give azacitidine, the most common adverse event is cytopenias, including thrombocytopenia, and so this was an attempt perhaps to mitigate some of that. The second thought was the other way around, that perhaps by giving azacitidine, one wouldn't see the increase in blasts and the other concerning changes that had happened with remiplostim alone in myelodysplasia. So this study, at the point it was presented, had enrolled just 40 patients with low or intermediate risk MDS who were going to get azacetidine. All of them got four cycles of standard azacetidine. And then they were divided a one to one to one randomization placebo versus two different doses of romiplostim 500 micrograms a week versus 750 micrograms a week. It's an injectable agent, just like erythropoietin. Its competitor eltrombopag is an oral agent, and that one has also just been approved, but for chronic ITP. And similar to romiplostim, there's interest in moving it into. Other disease states, chronic hepatitis treated with interferon, cancer chemotherapy associated with thrombocytopenia, chronic myeloid disorders like MDS. I want to ask you about a couple of papers in AML. But first, anything else in MDS that happened at ASH you want to comment on? I think this year we've really covered some of the main points. There was some epidemiologic data from a Medicare registry that I thought was interesting, partly because it perhaps gives me a little job security, and that it suggested that myelodysplasia is much more common than has been captured in registries and such. That when we actually look at the billing, angle of things, that there are loads of patients out there being diagnosed with MDS who aren't being captured by registries. And certainly that is a plausible idea. And so, you know, the numbers suggested that it's more common than all the leukemias combined and not quite as common perhaps as non-Hodgkin lymphoma, but in the top two or three in terms of hematologic malignancies. What number of cases in the U.S. do you think are happening? The guess based on this is closer to 40,000 than the ten to 15,000 that's always been cited before based on the SEER registry and previous epidemiologic studies.
0: So let's talk about AML. And first, the paper by Dr. Halawiecki looking right. at
1: cladribine. This is a really interesting paper, actually. Seven and three, the common induction regimen for AML is decades old. I mean, I was probably still in diapers when this thing came <laughs> along. I mean, it was in the early 1970s. And there have been numerous attempts to try to improve on it by adding alkylating agents, by adding a topacide, by changing the doses. And there's still a lot of that going on, trying to tweak it. But nothing has ever been able to definitively be confirmed as something that improved overall survival. It's easy to improve the CR rate at the expense of increased toxicity. There have been a number of things that have been done to improve perhaps disease-free survival by a modest amount, but overall survival, no. Now, this Polish group had done a previous study. They published it in Leukemia in 2004, where they looked at the combination of the 7 plus 3, donor rubicin and then compared that to a 7-day regimen adding cladribine. And the dose of cladribine that they give is five milligram per meter square per day, days one through five of that seven-day induction. And they were encouraged. It was a 67% CR rate for the cladribine combination versus 47% for the standard. And the long-term disease-free survival, there was also 43% versus 34%. So a real difference. So they elected here to do a three-arm study enrolling 673 patients, ages 18 to 60, excluding promyelocytic leukemia. And they either got standard induction, or they got this cladribine plus standard induction, or they got fludarabine plus standard induction and one-to-one-to-one randomization, and the cladribine arm won, 63% complete remission rate with the first cycle of induction compared to 55% for the fludarabine and 51% for the standard. In addition, the two-year survival was better, and that's really exciting, 51% with the cladribine arm versus 36% fludarabine, 39% with the standard, and those are statistically significant. And it did not seem to come at any cost in terms of increased induction-related mortality. That was 8 to 10%, a typical number in all three arms. So to be honest, this is one of the first things that I think is both practical and that has been added to 7 plus 3 to potentially give a better outcome. Now, it's a modestly increased outcome, and it's for patients 18 to 60. They didn't have elderly patients in here. So those are important caveats, but it is a difference. And I thought this was really a very interesting study and good on them. What do you think the clinical implications are? Well, I think it needs to be confirmed. We'll have to have this done by at least one other group, but if it is, it could become the new standard of care for induction. How
0: about the paper by Willems looking at
1: high dose IRC and also IL2? Right. So this paper was a report of the AML12 trial from Europe, from the EORTC and Gamema group. And what they wanted to do was really compare. Two different ways of giving citerabine in induction, a standard way. Here they used a 10-day, and we most commonly use a 7-day here in the United States. But high-dose citerabine, which has been very important in consolidation therapy, they wondered what would happen if you moved it up front. And there was a slight difference in the complete response rate where the high deck arm was better, 80.7% versus 73.6%. But there was no difference at all in three year disease free survival, 44. 44- percent versus 43 percent. And so that, I think, was a little bit discouraging. It's yet another thing that we can do to increase the CR rate, but without a difference in overall or disease-free survival. And the HIDAC patients had more conjunctivitis and such as we'd expect in induction, but otherwise, there wasn't much difference in terms of death or morbidity.
0: How about the paper by Sands looking at risk-adapted treatment of acute promyelocytic leukemia?
1: So SANS on behalf of the Petima Group, they have really been the leaders, I would have to say, in risk-adapted therapy of APL. And it was one of their studies that was first presented about four or five years ago that looked at a risk-adapted strategy combining ATRA and an anthracycline, but without citerabine. They also have been interested in a maintenance regimen that's very similar to the maintenance for All. Not the trexate, mercaptopurine, in this case, adding ATRA. The reason this study was done was because they were concerned that there was a group that they were over-treating and that there was a group that they were under-treating. They were concerned that they were overdoing it a bit for the lower-risk patients. These are people with a white count less than 10 and a platelet count greater than 40 at diagnosis, and that maybe ARC had something to offer for the higher-risk patients. These are patients with a white count greater than 10. And so this study looked at three different regimens. Everybody got the same induction with Atra plus Iderubicin, the standard regimen that we use at Mayo Clinic, but the consolidation differed. So the low-risk patients got Atra and idorubicin, and then mitoxantrone, and then more idorubicin. The higher-risk patients got Aracy as part of that. And they found that the toxicity was manageable and that the response rates were quite high, that CRs were achieved in 92% of patients, that resistance was almost a non-issue, and that hematologic relapse was rare. So I think just like in Hodgkin lymphoma, where we have successful therapies and people are now very interested in tailoring to the risk of the disease, low-risk therapies for low-risk patients, higher risk for higher-risk patients. I think we're seeing this now in another disease where there's very successful treatment, and that is APL. Interestingly, you know, arsenic was not a part of that, and that's something that the U.S. cooperative groups have been very interested in. What's the role of arsenic in maintenance or in induction in a risk-adapted strategy in APL?
0: How about the paper by Urba looking at clofarabine in older patients with AML?
1: Yes. This was one of several studies looking at a group of AML patients that have been a little bit difficult to get our hands around. And that is that people who are unfit for induction or unlikely to have a good outcome with standard AML induction, the 7 plus 3 regimen we talked about a few moments ago. And there are a lot of drugs and strategies trying to get into that group, partly because they're a group that does very poorly and there's just such an unmet need. And clofarabine is a drug that's approved for pediatric ALL, but has activity in myeloid disease. There were studies of it this year in MDS presented at ASH, and this was an AML study. And the number of patients on this study was 112. The patients had a median age of 71 years. To be eligible, they had to be at least 60 years old and have at least one additional risk factor, either some sort of antecedent hematologic disease, mostly MDS, poor performance score, poor karyotype, or an age 70 or greater. It was a group of somewhat higher risk patients, and they gave the clofarabine as a five day IV induction at a dose of 30 milligram per meter squared per day. The overall response rate was 46%. Most of those were full CRs 38% CR, 8% CR, with incomplete recovery of counts. And the one group that seemed to not do very well was those who had deletions of 5Q. I think that's important for listeners just to realize is that deletion of 5Q in AML appears to be different than in MDS where it has a relatively benign course. And in fact, even when you look at where the commonly deleted region is, it's more proximal on the chromosome 5 and AML than it is in MDS. So there's a difference there. And deletion 5Q do poorly here and they did poorly with clofarabine too. One important caveat with clofarabine is really the adverse event profile. There were some of the things seen in this study that have been seen before, elevated bilirubin, elevated transaminases. They did also see several patients who had renal insufficiency developed. This is something that people are being cautious about. And the myelosuppression is not insignificant. So I think that this is an active drug. It's something that is not currently reimbursed if you were to try to use it off-study, but it's something that we're going to see more studies on in the future.
0: What about the paper by Rivandi looking
1: at serafinib, idorubicin, and RC? Right. So, serafinib, as you know, is something that's a tyrosine kinase inhibitor that's a little bit messy and that it has inhibitory activity against several tyrosine kinases. It has uh, platelet-derived growth factor receptor beta, C-kit, the ERC-MEC pathway, VEGF receptor signaling is interrupted. And it has some effects also in flt 3 positive cell lines and acute leukemia. It certainly has a role in advanced renal and in hepatocellular cancer, which I believe are the two diseases for which it's currently approved. This study was really a phase one with an extension looking at can sorafenib safely be added to induction therapy to a standard 7 plus 3 regimen. And so that was what was done in this study. They used three different schedules of sorafenib, 400 every other day, 400 daily, 400 BID, and it proved safe to do that. They did see the biomarker. They saw a greater than 50% reduction in phospho-ERC by flow cytometry in most of the samples that were tested. And there wasn't a control group, so it's difficult to say how this would compare to standard 7 plus 3, but it was an active regimen.
0: Any other papers in MDS that were presented at ASH or anything that's come out in the last few months on AML that you think are important to
1: know about? Yeah, I think the other one to mention was the paper by Amanda Cashin and her colleagues that looked at a five-day d as a frontline therapy for, again, patients who are, quote-unquote, unfit or unsuitable for induction therapy. And this was a study of 55 patients. They all had newly diagnosed AML and were over 60, and about half of them were de novo disease. And they saw an overall response rate with this decitamine regimen of 26%, and the median time of response to the best response was about three months. So this is yet another agent, I think, that is trying to get into that elderly AML market. And at least my experience, based on trying to treat patients off study, is that You can do it, but it's not going to get reimbursed. Again, the off-label issue is really becoming a problem as we see people who maybe aren't eligible for a study, who we know there are additional drugs out there that are active and might buy the patient extra time with a reasonable adverse event profile. They can't pay for it. I think we're finally perhaps getting some treatments for AML that are going to improve on the standard 7 plus 3. That's exciting to me. There are a lot of different things going on with MDS using existing drugs and modifying the way they're given and such. But the number of new drugs on the pipeline for MDS is fairly small, and that's perhaps discouraging. And hopefully that will change in the next year or two.